2: Welcome to the program. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is the Friday edition. Hey, it's a good thing I'm not superstitious because it's the Friday, the 13th edition of the program. Uh, We're here to take your phone calls and answer your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, anything and everything. I'd love to close the week with lots of calls. Make it a good show. 210-340-9585 is your main number. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR, numerically at 630-5757. You can email your questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com. You can also use our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. And if you are driving in your car, I always remind you the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the call now band at the top of the screen and everything else will be hands free. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. Weekends are always fun for me. This weekend is a little different because I'm traveling, and I would appreciate people praying for me and uh, Pastor Juan, who will be traveling with me. We are going to Durango, Mexico, a church we planted there with Pastor Jay Bentley. Uh, they've asked me to come and speak to them and dedicate their new school building. They are beginning a brand new school uh, that starts in just a couple of weeks. And he asked me to dedicate it and pray for him and preach the message tomorrow on Sunday. So that's what I'm going to do. So just pray that there's no traveling hiccups. Everything else will be great. But uh, I would appreciate knowing you are praying. Tonight, I'm going to be teaching Revelation chapter 3, Jesus' letter to the church at Sardis. Just one word for you three times, dead, dead, dead. That's what Sardis is all about. So that's tonight. And Pastor Will will be sharing his heart on Sunday. Here are three services at 8.30, 10.15, and 11.59. Uh, He is going to be teaching out of Romans chapter 10. Okay, let's get to some questions while we're waiting for phone calls. Our first one comes from Bruce. Uh, Bruce says, Romans 3.12 says, there's no one who is good. How can we believe the Bible when it says something like that, when it's obvious there are a lot of good people? Um, Bruce, it depends on your standard of reference. You remember when uh, the rich young ruler came to Jesus and called him good teacher. Now, Jews understood that good was a term that was reserved only for God. And he said, good teacher. And Jesus stopped him in his tracks. Why do you call me good? And what Jesus was saying is, now you're accountable because you know who I am And you're talking to God, and still the rich young ruler didn't do what Jesus told him to do. Romans 3 says there is no one who is good. The Bible in Romans 3.23 says for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I think, Bruce, the difference between um, what the Bible says and what you're communicating with your question is the standard by which you measure good. If only God is good, that means everybody else falls short of that standard. That's why you need Jesus to go to heaven. If if you could get to heaven by being good or even by doing more good than you did bad, uh, then Jesus wouldn't have had to die. But the truth is, there is no one good. We know our flesh. And Bruce, if you're honest, you know the evil thoughts you have. You know the the things that you think or even say about other people. And so our standard has to be the standard set by God, and that standard is perfection. Now, I realize, and this is where we Christians get into trouble, people say, well, you think you're better than but it's No, we're not. We know we're not. The difference, Bruce, is that I know there's nothing good in my flesh, and you don't. I know there's nothing good in my flesh. I know. I've been walking with Jesus for 30 years. I've been a pastor now for more than 26. And the reality is that my flesh stinks every bit as much as it did before I got saved. My flesh isn't rehabilitated. My flesh hasn't gotten better. I was taking my doing my running and then walking up to the church again this morning. And for the second week in a row, I walked by and said, oh, there it is, and there's a, there's a skunk smell at this one place. Obviously, some skunks live there. And I thought, that's how flesh smells. And if we think that our flesh doesn't smell, then we've got some issues with what the Bible clearly says. So if Jesus is the standard of good, Bruce, the truth is there is none good. Now, let me state the obvious If I'm your standard of good, if you just say, well, Pastor Ron is the standard of good. If you're as good as him or better, you're going to go to heaven. If you're not as good as him, you're going to go to hell. That would be a terrible standard. Because Pastor Ron is not the standard. Jesus is the standard. And so what we've got to understand is that we need to know we need to be saved. The truth is there's a lot of people, unsaved people, who are better people than I am? They're nicer. Maybe they have a greater moral code. There are people actually say, well, I don't sin. Well, we know that's not true, but what we've got to understand is that I'm not the standard, you're not the standard. Perfection is good. Anything short is going to deserve and eternity in hell. The wages of sin is death. That's what we're owed based on what we do. So, Bruce, all you have to do to believe the Bible, it says there's no one good but God. All you have to do is honestly look at your own life and see how far, far short of that standard of goodness, perfection, you fall. It still frustrates me, Bruce, not you, but it still frustrates me that um, I run into people all the time who think they're basically good at heart. When the reality is all of us and our flesh is nothing good, all of us are jerks. We're all selfish. We all really only care about ourselves. And the fact that there are some who care about themselves to a lesser degree than you or I might doesn't change the fact that Jesus was the only others-centered man who's ever walked the face of the earth. So I hope that makes sense. Rodney says, are you familiar with planet shakers? Rodney, I had never, ever heard of planet shakers. So I went to a friend of mine's website, gotquestions.org, and um, found out what Planet Shakers is. Planet Shakers was established by uh, an Assemblies of God preacher named Russell Evans. After he had a radical encounter with God in 1997, the movement grew to the point that Russell and his wife Sam founded Planet Shakers Church in Melbourne, Australia, uh, in 2004. They remain the global senior pastors of Planet Shakers Church today as well as co-presidents of Planet Shakers Bible College. Now, here's what I know. It's a charismatic movement. Um, It's a a lot of weird stuff comes out of Australia, but it's just a a move. Somebody had a radical experience, so they're going to shake up the planet. And um, um, I think there's all kinds of problems with it. When we talk about Assemblies of God, doctrine and practice... Uh, there's just all kinds of difficulties. So, uh, this is just another um, movement uh, that comes out of the Charismatic Church. Again, I am Charismatic. Calvary Chapel is a Charismatic Church. But when it gets out of control, people always think there's something new. One of the things that must be frustrating to the Lord is people are always trying to improve on his model. You know, I'm going to tell a story. I don't have anybody holding online, and I'd love your calls at 340-9585. But when I first got saved, I, I was uh, I was six months a Christian when the Lord called me to be a pastor. Now, I obviously, I had a lot of work to do. But he called me to be a pastor, and I knew it. And I sort of resisted for a minute. You know, it was one of those things, well, Lord, I've been in these churches now for six months and people aren't serious. I thought I was the most serious, on-fire Christian in the world. And uh, I I said, you know, Lord, it's just just not for me unless, here's where I started bargaining with God, never a good idea. I said, Lord, unless I pastor a church that is completely committed and submitted to you, then I'll call, or I'll, I'll answer the call. But I want to be the pastor of a church completely committed and submitted to you. Now, if I was listening really closely then, I think I could have heard God laugh a little bit. But you see, we're impatient, we're immature, we, we, God never moves fast enough for us. And I thought, okay, Lord, I'm going to do it, but everybody's ever going to be radical. Everybody's going to be sold out. And then you find out that you're not even radical. You're not even sold out. You do your best. But there are times when you're not committed, when you're not submitted. And, and the idea that there's a better model to do church is laughable. It's arrogant. It really is arrogant. And if you want to, to be in a church that's going to shake up the world, then it better be a church that is focusing on God's Word. It better be a church that is consumed by a pursuit of holiness. And it better be a church that is being obedient, and the only way individually that we can assure that, not by starting a new organization, but the only way we can be sure of that, is to make sure that we are. I have to be committed and submitted, then then maybe somebody else will be influenced to be committed and submitted, but you see, it's on me to do that. And planet shakers and Uh, promise keepers in the past and all these different so-called moves of the spirit of God through the church world in just the time that I've been saved none of those are from the Lord none of those are from the Lord so here's what we do we study the word we talk to Jesus we do what he tells us to do in his word and we do what he tells us to do when he's speaking to our heart and then we do the best we can to be like Jesus and influence other people to do likewise. If we do that, then the planet could be shaken up. But this is just another group of uh, charismatics who think, well, we're the cool kids in town, we're going to do it. Again, it's, it's just um, an unhealthy church environment. So I hope that makes sense to you. That was Rodney. So Rodney, thank you for the question. Three four zero ninety five eighty five for your live calls and questions. Terry says, the Bible is pretty clear about Jesus breaking the Sabbath law, so how could he be sinless? Well, Terry, the Bible isn't at all clear about Jesus breaking the Sabbath law. Jesus didn't break any law. It was the Jewish religious leaders who accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath law. And Jesus, of course, created the Sabbath law. Um, He wouldn't break a law that he created. So what was the answer? The answer was very simple. It was the religious leaders who had the Sabbath law wrong. Jesus tried to correct them. He said, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And the Jews had it completely upside down. Well, well, on the Sabbath you can't do this, you can't do that. And and the truth is, no, 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 of course you can do those things. The Sabbath is a condition of the heart and spirit. It's not a, a matter of what you do or don't do. The Sabbath is simply a time to, to, to honor the Lord with your day. And Jews had a hard time doing that. They tried to find loopholes around the Sabbath law, and they were expert at doing it in particular the, the, the Jewish leaders were. And Jesus wasn't going to let them be hypocritical. That's why over and over and over he would call them snakes, uh, you brood of vipers, whitewashed tombs. Uh, Jesus was very direct with them, Terry. So Jesus didn't break the Sabbath law. He lived it, he lived it perfectly. He also corrected the religious leaders who had the Sabbath law completely wrong, completely misunderstood. So here's what you've got to understand. When the Bible says Jesus was sinless, you got to take that at face value. So it wasn't the Sabbath law that he broke. He's the one who got it. He's the one who understood it. It was the religious leaders who had it all wrong. Thank you for the question, Terry. Here's an anonymous question. Why didn't Jesus write any of the books in the Bible? Anonymous, because Jesus was dead and then raised and gone to heaven. The Bible was written, uh, the, the, the New Testament was written in the first century, and Jesus was in heaven. So Jesus wrote the Bible, the Holy Spirit pushing the pens of men, and Jesus sort of sovereignly working behind the scenes to make sure that we got a New Testament and it was communicated to us clearly. Now, in another direction here, Briefly Anonymous, uh, Jesus really did write all of the Bible. He just used human instruments, but we know that the Bible was written by the Holy Spirit. Men were the instruments. They had the pen in their hand, but it was the Holy Spirit inspiring the thoughts, pushing the pens, and that's the only way we could get a perfect Bible, inerrant, infallible Without error. It's the only way you could do it. God himself had to write it. So um, Jesus, who was God, actually did write it. He just didn't do it and say the book of Jesus. Um, he was quite content to leave us with the 66 books in our Bibles that we have. So I hope that is something you understand. You know, Jesus um, didn't have to write these things down to make sure that they were written. I hope that makes sense. Thank you for the question, Anonymous. Tina says, Pastor Ron, what is a Jezebel spirit? Um, Tina, there's no such thing as a real Jezebel spirit. A Jezebel spirit, it's figurative, and it describes a spirit that is in rebellion against God. Uh, Jezebel, uh, the 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 wife of King Ahab, who was a horrible, horrible king, Um Jezebel uh, was the one who was really in control. So not only she was undermining her husband, the king, she was the one who was really pulling the strings in the background. She was the one who was fighting the people of God, including Elijah, promising to have him killed. Uh, and, And she just wanted nothing to do with God. Now, Jezebel in the Old Testament was a really, really bad, bad woman. I mean, think about Elijah, Elijah just had this great victory over the prophets of Baal. He had this wonderful moment where where he saw the power of God firsthand, wiped them all out. And in fact, she sent message when she found out her prophets were dead and says, You will be like they are before the end of this day. And and he took off terrified. Having seen the power of God, this one woman scares him to death, and so he goes on this marathon run. Well, it was Jezebel. She was such a bad woman that she caused him to be that fearful. So that's what the spirit represents. It's not really Jezebel. I think it was, uh, I know it was uh, the last study, I think the last study in Thyatira, where he said, maybe it was the one before that in in, um, Pergamos. Uh, one of those two, uh, where he said, "You, you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel." This is—it was satira. and said, "You tolerate that woman Jezebel, who leads my people in sexual immorality." It wasn't a real woman named Jezebel. He was just identifying the woman, whatever her name was, in the church, who shouldn't have been in a leadership position but was. He was identifying her with the same spirit that controlled Jezebel. So, Tina, it's not something, you know, in some of these charismatic churches that are out of control, you know, they have spirits for everything. They'll tell people, oh, you've got a Jezebel spirit. Uh, If you're in a church like that, that has used the Jezebel spirit uh, in that context, speaking about you or someone else, that is a really unhealthy, abusive church, and uh, I would get out of there. So, Jezebel. It's interesting, when I was talking about that in the study in Thyatira, I said, you know, it's interesting. Nobody names their daughters Jezebel anymore. We have all these babies that are born here at Calvary Chapel. And and I had one mom or dad come and say, we're, we're thinking about naming our daughter Jezebel. And, and uh, uh, Judas is the other name uh, on the boys' side. Nobody names their boys Judas uh, because we know who they are and what they represent. So uh, it's just um, something to be wary of if you're hearing that thrown around in your church. Here's a question from Wanda. I'm going to a lot of questions. We'd love your calls at 340-9585. Wanda says, "'How can I get my boys to read the Bible?' Wanda, it's interesting. Uh, we had a young woman named Sabina Croft who just did a sweet summer devotion uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, it's hard for me to remember. Um, and, and she's 19 years old, just graduated from high school and she's on her way to college. And she did sweet summer devotion. And she said, my mom and dad made me read the Bible. By the way, her, mom, uh, her mom's name is Wanda as well. And she said, parents, don't be afraid to make your kids read the Bible. So that's what I'm going to tell you. Make them read the Bible. Set down some time every day where they're going to read the Bible. Now, I think parents ought to be doing it with them, but they also ought to have some, some time on their own to read. And I know kids don't want to read the Bible. I know they don't want to sit down in family devotions. But here's the here's the great thing. You are in charge so make them do it let the living act of word grab their heart and I promise you that the Holy Spirit will grab their heart you just have to teach them how to discipline themselves to do it thank you very very much let's go to Ray on line one Ray thanks for calling you're on the air
1: well hello Pastor Ron <clears throat> hope you're Hi, Ray. doing well
2: I am thank you
1: good I didn't call yesterday. I almost did, but I was having too much fun listening to you both. <laughs> uh uh one at one point Paula mentioned about being angry, but she was angry, but uh that that rang a bell with me because it just uh and and here we go with this politically correct or incorrect, you know, that uh I just I just have a real ugh or ick reaction when I hear a man saying, Well, my husband it just <laughs> it just makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. And uh you know, in times past uh, you know, now we're getting so politically correct and everything is so great, but we've I I think not because uh even though old as I am and older than you, but uh <laughs> with the, the the blonde jokes, the Polak yeah. jokes, they were not mean spirited in in my mind, you know. It was that was completely different time. And uh my my mom was at a cocktail party one time, this is kind of funny. And she was rattling off some Polak jokes, and this guy comes up to her, and she didn't really know him, but uh, <clears throat> he said, "Well, uh, hey, do you do you speak Polish?" She goes, "Oh no, uh." Uh-uh. And he, "Well, do you know uh, Polish? Do you understand Polish?" "Oh no, no," and he goes. Well, how does it feel to be dumber than a pollock? <laughs> <laughs> Got her a good one. I don't think she ever told another joke like that. But uh, uh, another thing is, you know, we're we we're, we're not correct in in the way things are going um, because we we're all familiar with Uncle Ben's. You know, the rice thing, not not just the rice aroni, but Uncle Ben's. There is no more uncle in Ben's and Aunt Jemima, there's no more aunt. <laughs> it's, you know, I just I just think it's so so bass awkward. I don't know how else <laughs> to say it, but uh thank thank it, you I I'll don't know comment what we can do about it.
2: Well I I don't think there's much we can do, but a couple of things that I'd like to comment on and we're running out of time for this half, but, but one of the things is that that um we, we've gotta remember that the people that are different than us uh, are the object of our ministry and we got to love them and and if we're angry at people um, we're not going to communicate that god loves them well at all we're going to misrepresent the lord and i think what we've got to do is we've got to understand that uh, this is our calling to love the unlovable and uh, we've got to have jesus's heart for him and it breaks his heart it's frustrating uh, it it's uh you know c- comedy I'll talk about that maybe on the other side of the break but but um, you know to have to watch everything that we say makes no sense at all, so we' got to learn to love our enemies. it's that simple and and uh, we can't be their enemy they they might be ours, but we can't be theirs. We've got 30 minutes left in the week. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes.
0: Welcome back to the Word to Stand On for Life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh.
2: Welcome back to the program, our last 30 minutes of the week, 340- 9585. As an aside to raise comments, you know, one of the interesting um cultural wars that's going on now deals with comedies and comedians. Um, you know, in this cancel culture, if anybody said anything that is unkind about anyone, it comes back to haunt them. And they're taking these comedians who who are being canceled. They're, they're not able to be booked and things. And the comedians are revolting against it. You know, comedy is fair game and it's supposed to be fun and it's supposed to be funny um, and um, I think we're we're finally in a, in a, a discussion where we're going to say, well, wait a minute, this is beyond common sense. Uh, comedy has to be sort of uh, off limits uh, for the cancel culture um, because it's just fun. You got to give these guys creativity, and you know nobody ever complained when they use filthy language, but but God forbid they should make a gay joke or a or a. a any other kind of joke that's deemed inappropriate. So uh, maybe some people are thinking about this, Ray, and we need to, to consider carefully that the people who are the source of the offense for us, they're the ones who don't know Jesus. And it's our responsibility to tell them about Jesus. To get angry at them, then God can't use us at all to reach them. And I don't know about you, Ray, I'm pretty sure because I know you, but, but, but at least in my life, I was pretty offensive to a lot of people before I got saved. And the truth is, uh, the truth is, it, it just, Jesus kept reaching out to me and we got to keep reaching out to those. It's easy to be offended. And I think we've got to be a little bit thicker skin than that. We've got to understand that they just don't know the Lord. Here's a question from Richie. I haven't had a question like this for a long time. I used to get it a lot. Uh, Pastor Ron, is Paul talking about his life pre-Christ in Romans chapter 7? Uh, the answer is no. He's talking about his day-to-day life, his struggle against the flesh. And it's very clear in the tense in Greek. It's very clear from the context. This isn't the Apostle Paul talking about, well, when I was Saul of Tarsus, you know, these things happened. He didn't have a conscience that bothered him. Pre-Christ. He's talking about his everyday life. What I want to do, I can't do. What I don't want to do, that's what I find myself doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. That's his struggle with his own flesh. Now, the reason this is so vital for us, Richie, is because if even the Apostle Paul recognizes that in his flesh is no good thing, how much more should we be able to freely admit that we've got those same ugly things going on in our lives as well? You know, we want to read the Bible more. We want to pray more. Do we do it? Many Times the answer is no. Well, I got this, I got that. Uh, We we don't want to have lustful thoughts, but here they come. And Paul is just crying out. I can't do this on my own. Every time I try, I fail. I'm a wretched man. In my flesh is nothing good. And Paul is, is being autobiographical. That is his story for the time that he lives in. And at least I'm one, Richie, who is grateful for his honesty. You talk about a testimony that has value. If if he struggled, then I'm not going to beat myself up over my struggles. What I'm going to do is I'm going to take those thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ and have victory over my flesh that way. But the apostle Paul, and I said this earlier to another question, our flesh never gets any better, and this is the apostle Paul in Romans chapter seven. This is the Apostle Paul saying, my flesh is every bit as ugly now as it was when I was Saul of Tarsus. And if Paul can admit that, I think it's time that we all admitted it. Stop thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And instead, simply say, Jesus, apart from you, I'm going to mess up everything. You know, Richie, this is the way I start every day. When I go outside and look at the sun in the eastern sky, sometimes the sun's not there because of clouds, but I know he's back there. And I I just think, you know, Lord, I'm going to mess up if I let go of you. And I've got too much to mess up, Lord, so I'm going to hold on to you. Keep me close. You hold on to me as I hold on to you. And the reason I have to do that is because of my flesh. The Apostle Paul had the same idea ugly flesh, Richie, that you do and that I do. So that was his story as he was writing it, the wonderful solution. And remember, there were no chapter and verse divisions in the original manuscripts. They were letters that Paul wrote. Um, When he gets to what we call Romans 8.1, he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then he ends the rest of chapter 8 talking about what life in the spirit is all about. When we are walking in the Spirit of God, we don't have those, oh, what I want to do, I can't do moments. When we walk in the Spirit of God, we can do all things through Christ who gives us strength. When we're walking in the Spirit of God, we don't have to worry about thinking ill of people. We don't have to worry about being disobedient. When you're walking in the Spirit, then there's going to be the great fruit of the Spirit that comes from your life. And that's the place... God intends for all of us to live every day. And if we'll understand that, I love when Paul cried out at the end of Romans chapter 7, after crying, what what I want to do, I can't do. He says, oh, wretched man that I am, and then he asked the question, who can deliver me from this body of death? I thank my God through Jesus Christ. And Richie, just for me, I imagine Jesus sort of riding up on a white horse, delivering victory at that moment. So that's the answer. Thank you, Richie. Here's an anonymous question. He says, if a homosexual believes in Jesus, will they go to heaven even though they're in a homosexual relationship? You know, Jesus once said, anonymous, that even the devils believe about who he is. So it doesn't matter what we personally believe about Jesus, the difference is believing in Jesus. Now, you use the word in your question, if a homosexual believes in Jesus. Let me tell you what happens if a homosexual really believes in Jesus. Not about him, but in him. He will no longer practice homosexuality or she will no longer practice homosexuality. It's that straightforward. You see, if you believe in Jesus, you're submitting to, to his lordship. You're surrendering your will to the will of God. You want to pursue holiness rather than than sin. And so if a homosexual believes in Jesus, they'll stop living a homosexual lifestyle. The problem is they don't want to do that. What they want to do is well, I believe that Jesus is the son of God but, but he made me this way and they'll find all kinds of excuses to keep sinning. And the Bible says pretty clearly people that sin, and there's a list of them listed in Galatians chapter 5 and First Corinthians chapter 6. There's a list of them that says if, if people live like this, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And this isn't just about homosexuality. If a guy's a drunk and he keeps getting drunk, Jesus says he won't inherit the kingdom of God. If somebody is uh, unkind, angry, loses their temper all the time, and they don't get better. You see, when you meet Jesus, you change if you don't get better. They don't really believe in Jesus. He himself said, on the day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't I know you? And Jesus will just say, depart from me, for I never knew you. So we got to understand the difference between believing about Jesus or just having intellectual assent to the person of Jesus Christ and truly believing in him. And Anonymous, I've said this a hundred times on this show. If you meet my Jesus, you change. That's simple. If you meet my Jesus, you'll change. Now, lest anybody in the audience think that I'm picking on homosexuals, I would say and have many times said exactly the same thing to people who come to me in active heterosexual relationships when they're not married well I believe in Jesus well no you don't if you believed in him you wouldn't be doing what you're doing with that girl or you wouldn't be doing what you're doing with that with that boy so believing in Christ requires a surrendering of our will to his will and when you meet him and he forgives you of your sins and you let Jesus come into your heart in the person of the Holy Spirit you change your likes and dislikes change Now, that does not mean that if somebody is a homosexual, they're no longer going to be attracted to people in the same gender. It just means that to please God, they're going to say no to what they know displeases him and say yes to that which they know pleases him. But make no mistake, Anonymous, if you're living in sin and you claim to believe in Jesus, then you've got to change. You've got to stop. What did Paul say to the people on Mars Hill in Athens? He said, but now God commands men everywhere to repent and to believe. And that's all we have to do. Just If you believe in him, then you'll behave in a way that honors him. If you're not living in a way that honors him, the Apostle John, known as the love apostle, He said, if you live like this and say you love God, you're a liar, and the truth isn't in you. So people involved in willful sexual immorality of any type, they don't really believe in Jesus. Again, they know about him, and they may agree to the facts about who he is, but they don't believe in him, and they haven't asked Jesus into their heart to change Him. 340-9585 or toll free eight seven seven six three kslr There's another anonymous question. Does God have a predetermined life for everyone? Well, yeah, He does, uh, but, but maybe not in the way that you're thinking. Um, God's will for our life is not causative. It's not as though God causes us to live the life that he has predetermined for us to live. However, God knows the life we're going to live because God knows everything. So it's not like you wake up one day and say, okay, well, I have to do this, no matter what, I have to do this. God's making me do this. That doesn't happen. What happens is that you say, okay, Lord, I surrender to your will. I ask forgiveness for my sins. You come into my heart. And then you just take his hand and follow him. If you want to know what God's predetermined will for your life is, anonymous, all you got to do is follow him every day and you can't miss it. I've had people ask the question in this program about spouses or careers. What should I do? What's God's will for my life? Uh, If you're following Jesus, you can't miss God's will. That is such a comforting thought to me. You know, me being in the will of God doesn't really depend on me. If I make a wrong choice, God is bigger than the wrong choice that I've made. For me to be in God's will, for you, Anonymous, to be in God's will, all you have to do is follow him and you cannot miss it. You'll be right in the middle of his perfect will for your life. So it's important. Remember, the idea of predetermined will, in this case, isn't causative. It's not God causes you to do it. It's just he knows the choices you're going to make. And that um, predetermined will for your life is just something that he knows you're going to do. It may not be his will, but it's what we're going to do. And God knows that he's never surprised by the bad choices that we make. I hope that makes sense to you, Anonymous. Thank you. Trey says, is it possible to live a sinless life? Trey, it is not. It is not. And I, I think your life and my life proves that it's not. Here's what uh, I know for sure. The harder I try to live a sinless life, the more likely I am to sin because I have no power against sin. I have no power in and of myself of of uh, uh, against temptation. But, again, surrendering to the will of God, I can walk in a way that pleases the Lord and I can live without egregious, or willful sin. But Trey, we're, we're all going to say, as long as we're trapped in these human bodies, until we're with Jesus, we're always going to struggle in the war between flesh and spirit. The caller uh, earlier, the the, the uh, person who wrote in and asked about Paul in Romans chapter 7, um, I'm pretty content in saying that if Paul couldn't live without sin, I couldn't. Trey, you can't. So here's what you do. You do the best you can. And when you mess up, you say, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to mess up anymore. And he's okay. Your fellowship is restored with confession and repentance. And then you walk in his will, walking with him and the power of God is going to be available to you. But until we get to be with him face to face, until this flesh in us is completely burned up. We lost somebody here at the church last night. Um, We all broken hearts. Um wonderful married couple. The wife Madonna was has been sick for a long time. We've been praying so long for her. You know, they were um because of their jobs they were travelling all over the country for a long time. They finally got to come back and then she was sick and and um you know bless her heart. She she she's now with Jesus, she no longer struggles with her flesh of any kind. So that's just the way it is. The way it is not possible to live a sinless life. Henry says, Pastor on, if someone doesn't believe in the Trinity, are they saved? They do believe in Jesus. Um, Henry, they don't really believe in Jesus if they don't believe in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Jesus made it crystal clear that God is one God in three persons. They're all completely God. And if you start messing with the the character, the nature of God, especially uh, in the triune representation of who God is given to us in our Bibles, then they don't really believe in Jesus. Jesus believed in the Holy Spirit. Jesus believed in the Holy Spirit. He said... It's good for you that I go away because if I go away, uh, uh, he, the other comforter, I'll send him to you and he will be in you and he will never leave you. So Jesus believed in the Holy Spirit. Jesus obviously believed in the Father. Jesus talked to him all the time. So what I would say, Henry, to your friend or the person that you're talking to is, if you say you believe in Jesus, how can you not believe in the Father and the Holy Spirit? How can you not? Jesus show them in the Bible where Jesus spoke to the Father all the time. He went up on a mountain to pray, uh, most nights all night. Uh, Jesus um, was spoken to by his Father, "This is my Son in whom I'm pleased. Listen to Him." Over and over, they had this running conversation. Would Jesus give us the Holy Spirit if the Holy Spirit wasn't in God? In fact, in the passage in John, he says uh, uh, in the Upper Room Discourse, he says, uh, it's good for you that I go away, because if I go away, I'll send another. That Greek word is alos, and it's the same substance, different material physically, but exactly the same substance. Jesus is saying, I'll send another me, won't be the, the me that you've been talking to and touching and feeling, the me that will live in you, and he will lead you into all truth. So, Henry, it's, it's impossible for somebody with any authority at all to say that they believe in Jesus if they don't believe in uh, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. That is what makes up the Trinity. One God in three persons, three different relationships with mankind, And yet, all at the same time, completely God, no senior or junior partners here, all completely God. Sophia says, I know angels sinned, but others did not. Can those angels still sin? The angels that did not. I assume that you mean, Sophia. No, the angels made a choice. Uh, Unlike humans, we can make a choice every day. And I'm grateful, Sophia, that that I get to choose every day to serve Jesus. I don't have to sin. I don't have to re-fight this battle all the time. But angels and humans are different. And angels, because of their position in heaven, because they they could approach the throne of God in their unfallen state, uh, because they were given such glorious power, too much is given, much more is required Is the principle. Um, They had a once forever choice. Satan led a rebellion in heaven. He convinced a third of the angels to become demons. And their cast, or their lot rather is cast and that can never change. So they had to choose. They only got one. You and I, we have to choose, but we get to choose every day, and I pray, Sophia, that uh, you spend your days choosing to do what Jesus told you to do. Good question. I think we're now inside five minutes, so if you want to call, we could take a real quick one. Otherwise, there's a question from Gideon, one of my favorite Bible characters to teach on um, Gideon. I love teaching through the book of Judges. Um, Gideon wants to know what does it mean that God cannot be in the presence of sin? You know that's a, a sort of a misnomer. We say things like that. Well, God uh, turned us back on Jesus when he became sin. God can't be in the presence of sin, but God is everywhere. I mean, literally, God is everywhere. So it's not that God can't be in the presence of sin. It's just that he has nothing to do with sin. God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. So darkness and light have nothing in common. If you go into a dark room and turn on the light, the dark vanishes. Well, God, who is pure light, uh, vanquishes any darkness. So, God can be in the presence of sin. He can't have any fellowship with sin. And obviously, because God is uh, omnipresent, he's everywhere and there's sin everywhere. So it's not like God looks at sin like, oh, heavenly cooties. It's not that at all. It's just that God has made a way for those of us who are guilty of sin. God has made a way for us to come to him. And God looks at you and he looks at me as though we are the purest of the pure. Fine white linen is given to the saints. I'm going to mention that briefly in our study tonight uh, in the book of Revelation, Jesus' letter to Sardis. I think i got time for one more. This one is from Joshua. He says, should there be times when a believer does not participate in communion? Um, Only when a believer is um, in rebellion against God, willfully sinning against God, and yet... Um, um, unwilling to repent, yes. Uh, Paul makes it very clear in his letter to the Corinthians that um, some people in Corinth were sick, some had even died because they were partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. You remember when God killed Ananias and Sapphira? He killed them uh, because it was evil in their hearts. Imagine what an offense it is to God when we come to the table of communion and, and just to... Because the questions we got earlier, let's say you're, you have a, a sexual relationship with somebody that you're not married to, and yet you can come at our church on the first Sunday of a month and, and say, well, I'm going to partake of communion because I believe in Jesus. Um, can you imagine how offensive that is to Jesus without repenting? Now, if you confess, agreeing with God that sinned, God, I don't want to do it anymore. Please forgive me. Well, then communion is instant. You're back in fellowship with God. That's what communion means. It means in fellowship with him. If you're unwilling to do that and you're in active rebellion against God, then there is no way that you should partake of communion. Uh, You're you're misrepresenting. You're actually making a mockery of the symbols of the sacrament, the the body that was broken in your body's place, the body that was spat upon and, and ridiculed and insulted, and, of course, the life that was given. So that we who are walking around dead, that life is given to you. And to partake of God with no desire for personal holiness, with no intention of repenting uh, is, um, man, that gets close to blasphemy. It gets really close to blasphemy. So it's not something that any of us should do. So Joshua, I hope that is clear. Please keep me in prayer, Uh, me and Pastor Juan. We are going to uh, Calvary Chapel in Durango, Mexico, leaving tomorrow morning. Uh, I would appreciate your prayers for Traveling Mercies, um, just navigating the whole thing. And then, uh, of course, uh, Pastor Will will be here on Sunday teaching at Romans chapter 10, and you will be blessed. Uh, Have a wonderful, wonderful weekend, and Lord, go to church. Find somebody that you can serve. Ask God, what about me, Lord, and what about today? And I promise you, we have some divine appointments for you. Hey, thanks for tuning in all week. It's been a good week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. I'll be back next week on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then.